0: If you Google Jeanette DePama, outside of a link to a Wikipedia page on her, and please don't click that, the first thing you'll see is a page from Weird New Jersey, the New Jersey-based magazine I referenced in Part 1 of the story of Jeanette De Palma. And if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and listen before committing to this episode. Within days of Jeanette's body being discovered, on the top of the Devil's Teeth in Hudai Quarry, Rumors began to spread like wildfire over the condition of her body and how it had been found. It was widely believed and accepted by those in Springfield, New Jersey area that witchcraft, Satanism, and the occult was responsible for the death of the 16-year-old. Jeanette De Palma had been discovered by police in the Hudai Quarry located in Springfield, New Jersey just six weeks after she had gone missing. Her case had been treated as if she were a runaway until a tog dropped a decaying human arm in front of a new apartment building in Springfield. It didn't take long to connect the dots and to find her. One officer had publicly discussed how he believed that symbols of the occult were found around Jeanette's body, but others who were also on the scene are not in agreement over what was seen. Going so far as to say that if you were looking for it, maybe it could have been created with the mind but that nothing of the occult had been found the day that Jeanette was found. At the end of the last episode, I talked about how I had felt that there was some level of experimentation with her death, and I will say that I still stand by that. I do also stand by the statement that there were multiple people present, regardless of whether or not they were all active participants or whether they were just mere witnesses. I'm Katherine Galvin, psychic medium and true crime addict, and this is Murder and Mediumship. And just as a reminder, while I do offer intuitive insight and connection to victims and or witnesses who have passed away through mediumship connection to the spirit world, I am in no way accusing anyone of committing any crimes discussed on this show. Before we dive into the tarot reading that I did about Jeanette's case, I want to remind everyone that September's calendar is open for full readings. 30, 45, and 60 minute readings. And if it can't wait until September, then head on over to my website, katherineandintuitive.com, and grab a three card tarot or oracle card spread in the meantime. Murder and Mediumship Patreon is also accepting new members at all tiers. This month, our Patreon exclusive afterlife interviews, where y'all get to ask questions of whomever we are connecting to, will be Israel Keys on August 23rd at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, And on August 29th, we will be connecting to H.H. Holmes. If you haven't been a part of those interviews, then basically what you can expect is to listen to an episode as I record it, and then at the end, you get to ask questions about the case or of the killer if we are actively connecting with him or her. I promise you will not be disappointed in these interviews. They are so fun to do, and I love the interaction with all of you at the end. I can't wait to see more and more familiar faces for both dates this month. Okay, enough of the business, back to the good stuff. Doing a tarot spread on any case is a bit new for me, but I felt the nudge to explore that side of things just a little bit more. With having limited time for readings over this summer, I allowed myself to finally commit to learning a bit more about the art of tarot, something that has really interested me since I was... Probably about Jeanette's age. And that being said, I decided why not pull some cards and see what comes up around this case. The deck that I used was the Ethereal Visions Illuminated Tarot deck by Matt Hughes. And the first card that came out for the spread defines Jeanette's state of mind. This card indicated to me that she would have been very stressed out and burdened in some way, struggling with unmet expectations. To me, I gather this to be related to her state of mind that day when she was last seen alive, after finding out about her cousin Lisa being gone for so long and struggling with her overall identity, who her parents think she is versus who the church thought she was versus who her friends know her as, and then that part of you that you don't really allow people to see because you don't really understand it yourself yet. And I feel like she was just really not thinking as clearly as maybe she would have been on any other day. Largely because of what happened with her cousin Lisa, but I do still think that there was more to it than that. Now, card number two was the Hermit, and is so strongly connected to her own journey with God or the higher power that she believes in, And I know that there's discussion as to how religious she really was or was not, but I do think that she was questioning a lot about her life, including the religious parts of it. And her sister Gwen, I mean, she was away in another state for drug rehabilitation. Her cousin was missing. She was 16. And just being 16 is enough to be questioning everything, including your core religious beliefs. We'll get to that part later, though, because there's rumors of her being involved in a cult activity herself. And I do believe that there was some level of curiosity and possibly even some experimentation, but nothing serious, nothing dangerous. I would even compare it again to the way that I explored tarot and obsessed over like the Salem witch trials. But for her Roman Catholic family and the onset of the satanic panic in the United States, I think it was just not really surprising that any interest in anything quote, witchy at all would have been cause for concern for her mother, Florence. Next up, the nine of wands indicates to me that she was in a very defensive state of mind. And again, I don't think this just relates to the attack. I believe that this comes down to the questioning that we just talked about. The five of wands brought yet even more attention to the inner conflict she was feeling and looking for answers to her questions of her own identity. Now, the Six of Pentacles can be about giving and receiving, and in this case, I believe this is about Jeanette receiving attention from someone she wouldn't have otherwise looked twice at. But because she was in such a mood and so frustrated with the way her day was playing out, she made a last-minute decision to kind of veer off course and to entertain someone more than she typically would have. The Nine of Swords to follow, again, being in a state of crisis, depression and anxiety, walking into a situation that evening that she had some fear around. I feel like she was being shown something or was being led to believe that she was being shown something that she wasn't really being taken to. And it was a ploy to get her alone from the beginning. No one was laying in wait for her. But once they saw her, once they saw her hitchhiking and once they saw her vulnerability, they had her. They knew that they could live out something that they thought about for a long time whether it would have been with her or anyone else, she was there for the opportunity and for the taking. I do want to say too that I, I feel like some of this would have been based or kind of not based on, but it would have been even made possible by different people that she would have been hanging out with. So maybe this was someone she had previous exposure to, Overall, though, the cards spoke of lack of fulfillment, feeling alone even if she wasn't physically alone, and looking to fit in and feel good and less stressed. I think all of that kind of brewed the perfect storm for her to be a bit reckless in her decision-making that afternoon. So let's knock some theories out. It's said that Donna Blattis and her family didn't even go to Jeanette's funeral, and that raised some questions for some people. Some said this was because Jeanette had overdosed at a party at the Blattis house and was carried to the top of the cliff to cover their own asses. This one is a solid 10 out of 10 no, in my opinion. Others could account for the fact that there was certainly no party around that day, and so it just wasn't possible. Truthfully, though, I don't lend much credit to this theory regardless. The officers talked about how hard it was to walk up the cliff to get her body and to get to her body, and that no way could anyone carry Jeanette up that hill. Or that cliff, really. Meanwhile, Officer Kish says that no one ever partied at Huday Quarry anyway, but that they all partied at the golf course at night and on weekends. They wouldn't have been able to hide a car at the quarry to hide from the cops, even being there in the first place, let alone if their party got busted. So who could have done it if it wasn't an overdose? How did the talk even begin about the occult being involved? And that's fairly simple. Pastor Tate said it. And then it was so. Once he was quoted in the papers saying that devil worshipers had done this to Jeanette when she tried to share the word of God with them, there was no turning back. Why would he do that? Why would a man of God point the papers in the direction of something that he had nothing to base this on? He had nothing to base his accusations on. Publicity and scaring people into the church even further. This was a church that really made money off of wealthier people coming to a more um, downtrodden area where the church was located. And Tate made an irresponsible statement. And while others focused on Satanism and unfounded beliefs that witches had something to do with her death, they could have been spending their energy on looking for a real killer. Multiple experts went on record saying that anything found at the scene and photographed did not indicate occult activity, but rather the opposite even. It was, it more closely resembled Christian symbology, interestingly enough. However, the watching reservation being so close by where others had found remnants of animal sacrifices, where it was rumored that there was witch activities, Satan worship and Santeria practices even, It made it easy for the general public to believe that it was occult related. And they couldn't let it go either. Even the police department brought a self-proclaimed witch to the scene of the crime to examine what had happened there. And when Jeanette first disappeared and was found, her family, from what I understand, had a hard time even believing that the occult was involved. Interestingly enough, though, one of the persons that had been looked at by police, someone known as Mike A., who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago, he was said to have been involved in witchcraft and even referred to himself as a warlock. Mike A. drove a vehicle very similar to one that had been spotted by Officer Kish parked at the bottom of the road that leads up to Devil's Teeth Cliff in the quarry. And while Kish says that he saw a red Ford Falcon and believes that whoever the owner or driver of it was could very well be connected to Jeanette's death, Mike A. drove a 1971 Ford Torino 500, which could have been what Kish actually saw. If you don't know what these vehicles look like, give it a Google because same, my friends, same. They do look very similar, especially if you are in the process of responding to a call and just driving past something looking suspicious. It may have been, I think, something that could have easily been confused. Mike A., the self-professed warlock lived just a six-minute walk from the corner of High Point Drive and Summit Road, the corner where Jeanette was last seen alive, and he had been known to give her rides before. Death on the Devil's Teeth talks about a woman who they call Rose and how she wrote into the magazine anonymously to say that she believed that Mike A. was responsible and that they tracked her down 10 years later to interview her. Imagine sending an anonymous letter only to be brought into this a decade later. She still believed that he had done it, though, and she told Weird New Jersey that he was really into witchcraft and, quote, those kinds of things. Rose had begun to hang out with Mike on her own, but she was beyond shook when he noticed her crucifix necklace and immediately told her that he couldn't be with her in any way whatsoever as long as she wore that necklace, which was the end of their budding friendship. Even more interesting, though, Rose goes on to tell Pollock and Moran, the authors of the book, that there were two others who routinely conducted rituals with Mike, which fits my multiple attackers theory as well. A friend of Rose's known as Melissa, to readers of Death on the Devil's Teeth, and I, I want to say that this is her real name, but again, I can't be positive. There were so many names that were changed just for the sake of anonymity that it's it's kind of hard to keep track of them all. but. She recounts instances where Mike was physically aggressive with other female students at his high school, and he actually moved to another state not too long after Jeanette's body was found. The last jaw-dropper with Mike A. is that he was actually very attracted to Jeanette, and she didn't really feel the same way, nor was she shy about letting him know that. So could he have snapped? Maybe he took her out there to show her something ritualistic because of her curiosity. And again, I do think that she was curious. I do not think she was actively participating in anything. Or maybe he told her he wanted to show her something but didn't really plan on showing her anything at all. I do believe that the strong feeling of occult activity, quote unquote, comes from this person's involvement or suspected involvement even and I'm not sure that I'm convinced the murder was sacrificial or centered around anything ritualistic at all. Maybe only that the person responsible had a greater interest in it than most. I think that might shock some of you that I went that way. (laughs) Melissa won't speak to Weird New Jersey about her experience with Mike because of, quote, possible repercussions for her and her family. Well, I'm not sure what that means, I believe she is still living in the area, and I, despite I know, despite curiosities, it's not my place to speculate. I think there's a lot of pain behind some of these stories, and it's not okay to drudge up anything for entertainment purposes. They aren't the only people who believe that he had anything to do or really everything to do with Jeanette's murder. But as I said, he died at the age of 56 in 2010, taking with him any knowledge that he may have had about Jeanette's death. Other theories and rumors floated around, but none of them really hold any water at all. For example, some believed that George Parcell, the chief of Springfield Police Department, had a son who was involved. Though it's literally impossible that either of his sons had anything to do with her death. Then, of course, there's the theory that she was accidentally shot by a police officer during target practice, and her death was a massive police cover-up. The only legitimacy to this is that the police used one area of quarry for shooting practice, but when you consider where they would shoot, and couple that with the location of where Jeanette was found, this one doesn't really add up either. Plus the small fact that nothing about her body showed any indication of a gunshot wound whatsoever, at least nothing that hit any bone. These next two raise some eyebrows though. And while many of you are convinced that it couldn't possibly be anyone other than Mike A, which I totally get, these people don't look all that innocent either. First, the Quarry Guard, Tommy Rillo. Rillo was never actually investigated by the police as far as Officer Kish knows, which kind of floored me. He's been described by many as sort of on the slower side, and this seems to be why police neglected to look at him. Tommy was in his late 20s or early 30s at the time of Jeanette's death and regularly toured the perimeter of the quarry and checked on the various buildings on the lot. He did this daily, and yet he never saw or smelled Jeanette's body. Something explained away by Kish very simply was that Rillo didn't go up that cliff or really much of the grounds on foot other than the buildings. He was paid to guard the buildings, and that's what he did. Evidently, he also had a series of locks and keys that he used to lock the gates each night. Not to even question this person, though, to not even question them at all, someone who would have been the most likely to have even had the chance to have seen something strange or out of place, that seems super irresponsible. Furthermore, when Weird New Jersey started investigating this, this case... They found they had found what they thought was Tommy Rillo's email address, and when they reached out and inquired as to whether or not he was the same Tommy Rillo that used to work as a guard for Who Die Quarry, he mysteriously replied, "No, Jeanette." Dot dot dot, and no other no other interaction was had. If that doesn't give you chills up and down your spine, oh my god! Finally, there's Red. Red was a caddy at the Balustral Golf Club, aka Balustral Red. Red actually lived in Hudai Quarry about 50 yards from where Jeanette's body was found. He was an interesting looking character with a scraggly beard, red hair, and described by most as an old hippie. It sounds to me if he wasn't quite playing with a full deck of cards either, as when he would caddy at various local golf courses, he would be paid in tips and then bury that cash near his lean-to on the quarry. Well, Asshole teenagers would watch him, and when he left this area where he was living, they would dig up and steal his money. It's thought to be suspicious that he wouldn't have smelled the decomposing body during the summer months either, though, and so how could he have not have said anything to authorities unless he himself was responsible for her death? And even more suspiciously, not a good look here, he up and left right around the time he had disappeared, and it appeared that he had left in a hurry. His small home or sardine can, as detectives called it, they found a ri- they found out a, like a, a pot of rice that had been cooking um, and it, it just looked like he really left in the middle of cooking or eating really abruptly. So no one could find him for quite some time, but when police did catch up with Red, they cleared him as a person of interest in the case. So if he weren't connected to her death, then why would he leave in the middle of golf season if that's how he made his money? There were other golf courses to caddy in the area, and I believe he was eventually found to be working or hanging around another one. In my opinion, though, he saw what happened, and whoever was responsible saw Red seeing what had happened. And I believe that Red left in order to put some distance between himself and what he had seen on the day that she was killed. Regardless of what was or was not found around Jeanette's body, The panic over Satanism and witchcraft skyrocketed as soon as the first article was published, quoting Pastor Tate. Now, Jeanette's cousin Lisa, the one who had run away before Jeanette disappeared, she went to the scene where Jeanette had been found, and while she was there, she claimed to have found tiny crosses all over the ground made out of twigs laid across one another. This was only three days after the fire department had to strategically lift her body down off of the cliff. The imprint of her body was still there on the blackened ground, and she says that what others claimed. It, it looked like Jeanette was laid between logs placed there to look like a coffin or an altar of some sort. The photographs taken of the scene, they don't support this though, but those have only recently surfaced. As previously, law enforcement had told anyone inquiring that the records had been lost to flooding from a hurricane. So were they actually misplaced? Were they destroyed? Were they not destroyed? Where did these come from? Did they think they were destroyed, I meant? Why would they have insisted that the files were gone when they actually weren't? Did they have a reason to be hiding them? Finally, the very last person of interest comes from Lisa and a vision that she had. And on this podcast, we lend credence to visions and intuitive instincts. And Lisa's vision She saw a blonde man with horn-rimmed glasses driving a green Buick pick Jeanette up while she was hitchhiking on Mountain View Road. She saw them, now this is in her vision, park at the base of the cliff where she was later found in real life and saw them walk up that cliff together. This vision gave Lisa a feeling of dread and she had never, that she had never felt before. And it wasn't much later that Jeanette's body was actually found on that very cliff. There's one more theory about, and there are plenty of theories, but there's another theory that her death had something to do with like a a mafia hit or a mob hit because of who her family was in the area. And you can read more into that one on your own as well, but I don't really believe that it had anything to do with it. So I didn't really give it any airtime here. But this theory about the Green Buick, this leads us down a different path to the stories of three other women. Joan Kramer, Mary Ann Pryor, and Lorraine Kelly, and one person in particular who just may connect them all. So what do you think? Occult killing? Killed by someone who was obsessed with the occult but wasn't actually a ritualistic killing? Was there one killer or more? Were they a serial killer? And lastly, do you believe that some crimes simply aren't meant to be solved? We will revisit Joan Kramer, Mary Ann Pryor, and Lorraine Kelly down the road in Murder and Mediumship. But for now, that's all for today. And thank you for listening to Murder and Mediumship.